Hi, everybody. Welcome to the green room for Disrupt TV. We won't be talking about AI today, or maybe we will. We're just kidding. Well, welcome. And uh, I'm Ray Wong, um, your uh, co-host here with uh, Bala Afshar, and of course, our awesome producer today, Hannah. And uh, we've got some amazing guests. So quickly, let's go down the line and talk about where you're coming in from and what are we going to talk about today? So Damon, where are you coming in from and what are we talking about? Hello, everyone. I'm Damon Lemby, and I'm calling in from Sausalito, California. And today we will be talking about being a learn-it-all instead of a know-it-all and why that's so important, um, which I believe is because of such a rapid pace of change these days. So I'm happy to be here. Awesome. Looking forward to hearing more about that. Lee, Lee Rainey, where are we coming hey, from? What are you talking about today? I'm going to talk about, I'm the director of the Pew Internet Project, and I'm going to talk about the survey that we do of people like you, uh, Ray, uh, when we ask experts to predict things about the future of the Internet. And the last uh, report that we issued was on the best and worst trends that will unfold in the next decade or so. Oh, yes, that was a super report. So very, very cool. So, all right, Yusuf, where are we coming in from? What are we talking about? Ray, how are you? Um, I am in Chicago today after being on both sides of the country already this week. So I, um, I, I, I finished here in the middle. Uh, I'm responsible for the uh, Accenture operations business. And, you know, all of our clients are asking us a lot about AI, digitizing operations. We've done some research lately. And so I think we're going to hit some of those points. Oh, that's going to be awesome. Well, hey, with that, we're going to kick off the show, turn it back to you, Hannah. And uh, I guess we'll drop in and see you guys on the other side. All righty, we'll get started in three, two, one. Thank you for joining us on Disrupt TV. My name is Vala Afshar. I'm the Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce and your co-host for the next hour. We welcome you to follow us on Twitter at Disrupt TV Show. Send your questions to Ray, myself, and our guests using hashtag Disrupt TV, and we'll do our best to answer them live. It's my pleasure to introduce my co-host, Ray Wong. He's the CEO and founder of Constellation Research. He's the best-selling author of Everybody Wants to Rule the World. Ray's a regular television business and tech news contributor on Fox Business, Yahoo Finance, Bloomberg, CNBC. In my opinion, he's one of the top features to follow on Twitter at RWAG0. Welcome, Ray Wong, to Disrupt TV. Hey, thanks a lot. I'm here with Bala Afshar, the chief digital evangelist for Salesforce. He's also the author of The Pursuit of Social Business Excellence. This is an amazing book, but he's got a new book. It's called Boundless, A New Mindset for Unlimited Business Success. And it's going to be available in September. And you can pre-order it today on Amazon. But executives around the world 
spent a lot of time paying attention to every one of his inspirational, insightful tweets. And when he's not keynoting, hosting, leading events, doing yoga with world officials at the UN, you can find him speaking on business TV outlets like Bloomberg and, of course, posting insightful analyses on ZDNet. So, but it's not about us, as we always say. It's about our amazing guests. And who do we have to kick it off today, Vala? It's our pleasure to have Yusuf Teo, Group Chief Executive of Accenture Operations. Yusuf's team of over 215,000, right, 215,000 professionals <laughs> deliver strategic managed services across enterprise functions, enabling clients to digitize faster, become data-led, and bring resilience to their business. Ray, this is a $10 billion business. <laughs> it's amazing. Accenture operations help organizations change how they work, how they engage with customers, and the talent they need in, for today and in the future. Throughout his career, Yusuf has worked with over 100 client organizations in more than 20 countries with extensive experience in digital transformation, including business strategy, operating model change, business process transformation, and large-scale technology implementations. Welcome, Yusuf, to this. Paula, that's a that's an <laughs> unbelievable introduction. And listen, we only have a 20-minute show, so I have to cut your bio to about a tenth of what you've accomplished. 215,000, 10 billion. I don't know how you sleep at night. That's just well, awesome. It's, uh, awesome. A lot of responsibility. Starts with having a great team. That's always the case. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Well, hey, look, Accenture Operations is huge. Uh, most of our clients and a lot of a lot of everyone's clients here have, have worked or interacted with you in one way or another. And and the state of operations are really changing, right? As as group chief executive Accenture Operations, right? I mean, that's a lot of people, and we're seeing a lot of shifts. Right. We've got analytics, automation, AI. You guys talk about intelligent operations that are popping around. Um, what what is changing? What does this mean for you and for customers? Uh, you know, in order to stay relevant and competitive, are there trends that you're facing? Are you seeing different shifts in terms of business models uh, that you know people wouldn't not, not normally know about? Yeah. Look, Ray. It's a it's an exciting time to be in business. It's an exciting time. Uh, you know, to be on the operational side of business. And, and um, you know, as Vala mentioned here in, in the intro, what we do in Accenture Operations is we deliver managed services where we help our clients. We deliver um, processes on behalf of our clients. We put tech data and AI in front of every business process with this constant focus on innovation and improvement to all enterprise processes. We also do this across the enterprise, in the marketing space, the sales space, the customer service space, you know, around enterprise functions and in finance and supply chain and procurement, and then around core industry processes. And so the questions you're asking, you know, the question you're, you're asking about what's going on, it's in, incredibly relevant. You know, when I talk to CEOs and their leadership teams, they tell me they're under tremendous pressure right now to digitize faster, mm -hmm. to drive cost and growth at the same time, to put more resiliency in the business, you know, and, and to create a model, a, a, a way of working that, you know, gives them more agility, allows them to respond faster to, to everything that's going on in, in the world. And, and so much of that reinvention strategy, you know, leads to tech. And so, like I said, it's a super exciting. This is, this is everything. When you're talking operations, it's procurement, right? It's health, right? I mean, you're, you're talking about supply chains. You're talking about compliance, right? It's everything in business operations. So exactly right. And in fact, the, the, the business that, that, that we've got at Accenture, you know, really works out to about a third, a third, a third, about a third of my people spend their time helping our clients deliver marketing, uh, answer customer uh, inquiries and work directly with customers. About a third 
are helping drive what we call maybe the middle and the back office running finance or HR or supply chain on behalf of our clients. And some of the most exciting work we do is in fact in the in the, in the core industry processes. We run claims and, and underwriting for insurance companies. We run pharmacovigilance and drug discovery for, um, for, 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 um, for life sciences companies. These 215,000 technology and business professionals are constantly feeding information from the outside in to help bolster Accenture research, uh, an incredibly accurate evidence-based process of not only understanding the present day, but also future of business. And for a decade, you've been producing annual reports, the Tech Vision Report, which is my most popular ZDNet article every year. Uh, thanks to Accenture, I've probably got a couple hundred thousand Twitter followers. Uh, and it's incredible because every year you reflect on previous year's predictions to fact check and make sure that you're fine tuning your processes in terms of your research. And a lot of the research today and for the past several years points to the impact of AI. Mm -hmm. Current research says that 42% of companies want to make large investments in generative AI this year. 98% of global executives agree that AI foundational models will play an important role in the organization strategy for the next several years. So at the same time, all this enthusiasm and excitement about emerging tech like AI, but your research shows that investing in more digital technologies doesn't guarantee higher operation maturity. A little bit counterintuitive. Can you talk about, first of all, this incredible robust process that Accenture has with their research and how the findings sometimes can be counterintuitive. Yeah, no, it's it's a great question, and and um, you know, I love the tech vision as well. Paul Doherty, our uh, chief technology and innovation officer, puts that out every year. They do a fantastic job, and and what we tend to do then is we we build off that research. And so some of what you're referring to there, Vala, and some of the data points uh, you just provided, some of the research we've done most recently, both on AI and then you know, and then on sort of reinvention of operations. And, and you rightly point out that tech alone, AI and tech alone, and the investments in AI and tech alone does not, in fact, guarantee any um, significant or meaningful return on investment. And then it, it certainly doesn't guarantee, um, you know, what we would call um, operations reinvention or, or, or really operational maturity. What our research tells us about uh, two months ago, we, we kicked off another study. We, we, um, we interviewed 1,700, just over 1,700 executives, C-suite executives across uh, 19 different industries and all markets. And, and we really looked at um, operations maturity on several dimensions. And what we found was that while artificial intelligence is critically important, it's only one of six attributes that really inform operational maturity. So AI is one of them, but how you leverage data and analytics more broadly around your automation agenda, how you connect leading practices, you know, both around process and tech, how you bring your business organizations and your tech organizations together to collaborate, the investment you make in talent, and then how you uh, tend to think about all stakeholder experiences. All six of those characteristics applied together is really what determines operational maturity and therefore the return on investment on those uh, on, on, on AI and tech. I, I want to just follow up with, uh, I, I'm aware that uh, Accenture drinks its own champagne. Uh, 750,000, I believe, employees 
But whether we're, we have Accenture executives like yourself coming uh, on our show talking about whether it's the metaverse or Web3 or blockchain or AI, there's always strong evidence of use cases where you're actually kicking the tires inside of Accenture at large scale. So you're not just informed by clearly your, you know, your, your amazing clients and customers, including my company. I mean, you're, you're the largest partner we have in the world. Uh, but you really have this uh, culture of experimentation and innovation. How much do you encourage your 215,000 men and women to really uh, make sure that Accenture is one of the leading edge companies when it comes to using these technologies to improve your company's performance and, and value add? Paul, it's a, it's a great question. Um, you know, you have worked with Salesforce for a number of years. You have a, a, a tremendously innovative culture as well. And so I know these points, you know, resonate with you. We invest a billion dollars a year, over a billion dollars a year in just training and skilling of our people. And wow. so we, we're, we're um, hyper-focused on constantly developing and growing the skills, particularly the technology skills of the 700 plus thousand people, uh, you know, that work inside Accenture. And then we also, you know, my boss, um, Julie, our CEO, constantly encourages us as a leadership team to be, in her words, our own best credential. You know, as I mentioned, Accenture Operations runs a number of different functions on behalf of our clients. Well, Accenture, the company, is also my client. In fact, one of my largest clients. We run HR operations for Accenture in Accenture Operations. We run uh, parts of our finance organization. We run marketing um, functions within Accenture Operations. And so we're constantly both investing in our people and the development of their skills. And then we're constantly pushing the boundaries on how much we can do to ourselves yeah. and through those learnings, bring them to our clients. That's amazing. That's great. You guys That's are amazing. the experimental laboratory for yourselves and before you get it out to the clients. So, um, Ray, do you, Ray, do you know any company that spends a billion dollars in employee training? I mean, that's, that's unbelievable. <laughs> uh, not a that's lot of companies that do that. That's, that's pretty wild. So, but, but related to that, right? I mean, we're seeing this a lot of interest in AI and, of course, generative AI today and a lot of interest in automation. Um, what potential do you see that in operations, right? Where are you seeing, you know, basic automation playing a role? Where do you see opportunities where you're augmenting the machine with a human to get to levels yeah. of precision and higher levels of, you know, reducing, you know, false negatives and false positives, uh, where you're augmenting the human with the machine. So we're much more productive and effective. And of course, where do you actually apply human touch? So where are you seeing all this happening? Uh, as we talk about chat GPT and LM models and automation, uh, that's got to be changing your world or turning it upside down a little bit. It It's, um, well, it makes our world very exciting. In fact, you know, I, I mean, we we see this as a really, um, really significant opportunity. And you guys know us uh, quite well, so you know, you'll know that we've been talking about and doing automation and AI for years and years and years. In fact, in in my business in Accenture Operations, we automate about eight to ten percent of the business every year. So if you have, you know, two hundred and ten, two hundred fifteen thousand people in the business, you know, imagine that. 18 to 20,000 of those roles every single year go away yeah. and the people don't go away. The people, we, we have the people focus on higher value tasks, but the, but the work, you know, um, we've been able to continue to automate. So we're already in the business of automating eight to 10%, you know, of, of the, of, of the work that we're doing. Generative AI has now created a really interesting and exciting inflection point. First of all, it's captured everyone's attention. So while we've been doing this for years and years, you've now got every executive thinking about it, asking about it, talking about it, wanting to get educated on it. 
you know, wanting to make investments around it. So that's a good thing. The second thing generative AI does, I mean, when you, when you think about the, the types of automation that we've been doing over the, over the years in all of these enterprise processes, you know, it's, it's making predictions, it's executing decisions, it's driving compliance to process controls. Generative AI, though, um, you know, has, has, it sort of takes us to a different place. In our current world, a human must still interpret data before the AI can take over, and a human must then pick up where the AI left off to finish a process. But with Gen AI, you know, you can now um, we see the potential to perform data extraction, to understand the data that shows up, in the, whether it's in the form of text or images or audio or video, really maybe even to be able to assess sentiment. Now, it's still early on these things, but this is this is sort of the potential. And then Gen AI can take the decisions and create, communicate or respond. So it really does become a co-pilot to the human. Right. We've, we've gone from you know identifying the patterns to completing the patterns to predicting the patterns. And now we can actually go from data to decisions and a lot more quickly. I mean, exactly it, it's right. incredible. I mean, so. it really is. It really is. And, and if, as Joseph said, you know, it was November of last year where the world kind of woke up to large language models and generative AI. But if you've been reading for 10 years, your research, specifically the last four or five years, you've had robust chapters. And Bala has read every one of these. I have. I have. <laughs> I read about every one of them. And I mean, in, so. in January, you're publishing the importance of foundational models. And this was a publication that literally was only 60 days after the world woke up to Gen AI. So again, Accenture has been ahead of the curve for, for decades. And, and part of that, I know, because my company's largest clients partner with Accenture to implement large-scale enterprise projects uh, crossing all lines of business, geographies, and multiple industries. And these CXOs that I have the privilege of uh, you know, collaborating with, they talk about growth. They talk about delivering value at the speed of need. They understand personalization, intelligence, speed, scale. These are the currencies in this hyper-connected, digital, and more decentralized economy. Yusuf, when you hear words like growth or when you hear words like value, what does that mean to you? I mean, because frankly, a quarter million people are looking for you to define purpose and mission for them. <laughs> so how do these words resonate with you when you hear a client say, I want to grow my business or I want to deliver value to all my stakeholders? Yeah, well, um, Bal, I love the question because, you know, when we talk about growth and when we talk about value, certainly there's the financial aspects to that, right? We're, we're um, always committed to both the top line and the bottom line impacts, you know, that we can help our clients drive. But, but we tend to approach this and, and, you know, with this notion that we call 360 degree value, that is you're, you're delivering certainly on the financial benefits, but the other things clients tell us that they want is they, they want a, a, a path on the talent agenda, you know, show me how to create new opportunities and new paths for my people. They want a, um, they want a commitment on their DEI agenda. Show me how to bring the the you know the diversity and the and the um, the ESG commitments that I've made into yeah. how you execute operations. Yeah. They want a commitment on um, all of their stakeholders and the experience that we drive for all of their stakeholders. And so so you know we've we've found that when we pursue 360 degree value, the financial commitments and then everything else, you know not only does that provide the right inspiration and opportunity for our people but it really delivers on a much more holistic set of outcomes for our clients. That is incredible. And especially given what we're seeing in the marketplace today, um, 
we're, we don't have enough skilled work. We have not skilled people. Everybody needs training. A lot of the institutional knowledge you guys have built over time and, and cross industry expertise is becoming even more important. So this is amazing. And, and thank you for being here. We're here with Yusuf Tayyab, Group Chief Executive Officer of Accenture Operations. And thank you so much for being on the show. Happy Friday. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Ray. Thank you, Bala. Terrific. 10% automation on an annual basis, a billion dollar investment. 220,000 people plus. Think about that. <laughs> yeah. How do yeah. you put processes in at scale like that? I, I, it's, 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 it's amazing. And, and consistently named one of the best places to work, high Glassdoor rating, one of the, one of the most uh, celebrated CEOs in the world. Uh, you know, it's, and of course, our, one of our, my favorite guests, your favorite guests, you know, we have Paul Doherty. Paul, on the Paul show Doherty. Yeah. I mean, or or just catching up with John Walsh, who I think yeah, yeah. Yusuf knows very well yeah. from CMT. So it's, it's all fun. It's, so, uh, it's but yeah. you know, the leadership is so in tune to what, uh, you know, clients need. Speaking of, uh, you know, someone who's in tune to the future, our next guest is uh, Lee Rainey, Director of Internet and Technology Research at Pew Research Center, a nonprofit, nonpartisan fact tank that studies the social impact of the internet. Uh, Lee's project was described by American Sociological Association as the most authoritative source of reliable data on the use and impact of the internet and mobile connectivity. And ASA awarded Lee uh, an internet project its award for excellence in reporting on social issues. Uh, the project has issued more than 800 reports based on a survey that examines people's online activities and internet's role in their lives. Lee is co-author of Networked, the new social operating system with sociologist Barry Wellman about the social impact of the internet, mobile phones, and social media. Lee's also co-author of five books about the future of the internet that are based on project surveys about the subject. You can follow Lee on, he must have been an early Twitter adopter, L. Rainey, L-R-A-I-N-I-E. Welcome back, Lee, to Disrupt TV. Hey, Val, it's great to be with you and see you. And I just listening to you talk to Yusuf, I had a lot of flashbacks because um, uh, so many of the questions that we're now asking as we try to measure the social impact of the internet, um, just substitute and replace the words AI and generative AI for the word internet in the 1999, 2000, 2000 word period. Uh, you know, Isn't we're all amazing? asking about this you know. incredible run of innovation that's gonna disrupt you know, everything that we know about. And I had the feeling that we were doing that when we were just <laughs> studying you know, ones and zeros back in the day. Well, hey, you've, look been, at the you've been on the forefront of the, every revolutionary uh, you know, enhancements in terms of technology, cloud, mobile, social internet, and now certainly AI. Hey, look, if the methodology is good, the find and replace should be fine. You don't have to worry about it. I had a really good, <laughs> had a really good mentor that basically told me, you know, find the research that someone wrote 10 years ago and rename everything and you'll be okay. <laughs> yeah, like, honest to goodness, we're, we're, as we write uh, AI, especially generative AI questionnaires, I'm going back and looking at the work we did in 2006 and seven on search engines. Yeah, it's, it's going to be the same. But hey, you folks at Pew Research and Elon Universities, they've been imagining the Internet Center. I've been actually thinking about this for years, right? I mean, you guys have been the forefront of helping people understand where the trends are going to be, how to actually react to the trends, right? How to prepare and be out, be out there. And so, you know, you recently asked experts, again, for predictions about the best and the worst tech trends that will unfold in the next decade. So one, why did you do that? And two, I, we, we're going to want to know more about that. So. Sure. I, you know, I sit in, in two worlds, uh, this it's wonderful expert world where we do canvassings of experts 
and try to ask questions about what's a, what's around the corner and what's what's going to happen. And you Ray, are particularly insightful about all of these things. So there's a futurism hat that I wear, but we also do. Pew's really well known for uh, general population surveys. So you have to orient a lot of your questions in a way that the average citizen can interpret and, they, and that they understand. And so as we recently did uh, just a questionnaire about uh, who has used ChatGPT, 42% of American adults had never heard of ChatGPT. Oh, wow. So there, there's a sort of bracing reality dose for everybody in the, in the industries that you're in. Just not everybody's on the same page that you are. So as I wear my futurism hat, I, I go to experts like you to, to figure out what's happening in the future. And we had this wonderful partner in Elon University in North Carolina to do these canvassings uh, of experts. And over the years, they've predicted the rise of mobile dominance of online platforms. They've predicted the rise of social media and some of the things that could go dark mm -hmm. in social media. They predicted um, uh, disruptions and attacks and cyber warfare and things like that. So we, this particular survey is sort of a capstone. I'm leaving uh, the Pew Research Center. Uh, I'm retiring, but um, I'm going to probably stick at work like this. Uh, but, and we wanted to have a big summative kind of piece about where we've come and where we're going to go. So that's why we asked about best and worst. And a lot of people wrote a lot of words to try to get at some of that. So let's start with the with the bad news, if we can. Maybe the breaking some of news the, here, yeah. Some of, well, what, what, the retirement was breaking news, but I'm, I, you're too young to retire, so I'm anxious to see what you're going to do next. We all are. But uh, in terms of the, let's say, the worst uh, trends, uh, more than a third, 37% of these futurist experts were concerned uh, 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 and more concerned than excited about the changes. Uh, the most harmful and menacing changes in digital life, they predicted will most likely be 12 years from now, like 2035. So I'm interested in that inflection point of where we may experience harm. But can you talk a little bit about some of the, some of the worst predictions with, the, with these experts? Sure. As we went ahead, you, you um, talked about some of the statistical findings, although this is, really isn't a very scientific sample. It's just uh, wonderful experts who will answer our questions, and they're not representative of anybody other than super smart people who look <laughs> at the future. Uh, but anyway, 305 uh, folks responded to this particular canvassing. We asked them to address uh, five dimensions of, of the world and, and, and social life in particular. One was human uh, development, uh, digital tools and systems. Another was human rights. Another was human knowledge. Another was human health and well-being. And the final one was human connections and governance. Are institutions going to basically catch up on this stuff? And when we asked them about the, the sort of harmful stuff, uh, they, they talked about a bunch of things, starting with a, a bunch of their concerns related to how a sort of profit motive and profit centers and profit incentives are driving so much of the most advanced change, particularly in AI and generative AI in particular. They, they worry about data surveillance and, and, uh, and the collection of data and the predictions about people and whether they'll be accurate or not, or whether they'll uh, actually lead to more human autonomy or less human agency in the world. Uh, so they, they are really worried about this, and they are particularly worried, as, as a lot of scholars are and advocates, uh, about the long-term impact on inequality and, and what it's going to do to democratic systems. Uh, on the human rights side, they're also worried about sort of surveillance of citizens, particularly in author authoritarian countries. It's just mm -hmm. so easy now 
to keep track of people, to infer what they're going to do, to sort of predict what they're going to do, to uh, sometimes jail them for what they might be doing or thinking about doing. So there's some big concerns there. And finally, I'll just uh, talk a little bit about health and well-being because there are ways in which, of course, the AI developments are going to um, lead to lots of better health outcomes and better health systems. But the experts who are worried about this think a lot about mental health and anxiety mm -hmm. and depression and the kinds of things that we've already seen come out of social media that are leading to a lot of people saying that they are suffering uh, in this life. This is incredible. Of course, the 300 big brains that you spoke with one of them is with us today, and Mr. Wong. <laughs> and I encourage our audience to read this incredibly robust report because it's named experts and their opinions. I'll give you an excerpt from Mr. Wong. Policies are being created around the world to take away freedoms humanity has enjoyed and move us to more towards the police state of China. Existing lawmakers have not created the tech policies to provide us with freedom in a digital era. So uh, I won't have you, Ray, comment on it, but I just wanted to uh, give our audience an example of the incredible insights that Lee and his team have collated into this incredible incredible report. Go ahead, Ray. Hey, I'm going to sing more Ray's praises, though, because okay. uh, uh, the first time we love he, that. We love he, and, that. he and I were in each other's company was the uh, collision hosted conference about the people's internet at the end of yes. 2018. And we had issued a report just then with Ray's words in it and Vint Cerf's words in it. He was another sponsor of that conference that the, the report was based on the impact on human agency and human autonomy of AI. So five years ago, we were, this was a frontline agenda item for us. And an incredibly big number of the predictions that were made there are now playing out. Like worrisome things like Ray is pointing out how people might be nudged or shoved in certain directions without mm -hmm. the opportunity to go in other directions, that certain kinds of thoughts wouldn't be permitted in these systems. And, uh, and I, I believe it was Ray and others who at that conference were beginning to talk about the sort of shrinkage of human agency in the wider world. And so that's what's, that's what's going on uh, in this report as well with, a, with, of course, brand new tools that were, at the time we were fielding this survey, uh, ChatGPT was about four weeks old and already people were in huge commotion over it. Wow. Well, and I believe night. that's the event where we celebrated the 50% 50th access to the internet. internet. The people-centered internet event. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, no, we we last night I was at an event uh, run by Reinvent Futures, Peter Layden, Joe Baggio is the big AI event where everyone was there. And I was asked to think about where the future was going to be. And what I was really worried about was the largest companies and the smallest companies are, the, the, the there's going to be a disparity. Small companies can't compete with large companies for AI and data because of the networks and the power. Uh, individuals can't compete with governments who are going to oppress folks. But the thing that I really thought about and when I walked out of there was that it's going to be very important for large language models because knowledge in society is going to continue to be shrunk, right? They're not going to leave anything in the public models and everything's going to be private and hid behind firewalls. And what's going to happen in the future is we're probably going to have to take LMs and treat them like patents and trademarks, right? You know, there's an expiration date and then everything gets turned back into the public good because if you don't do that, there will be no more human knowledge, right? If you want to extrapolate that far out. But that is the worst of what could happen in technology. Let's talk about what the best is that could happen in these future trends, because I'm trying to get ourselves out of this dystopian area. <laughs> so. Well, Jure, I'll just add one more thing. I don't know whether it'll, it'll be dystopian or not, but you know there are serious predictions in this report that we mentioned 
uh, about, about AI advancing to the point where it has its own sentience, where it has its own consciousness, it, has its, it can suffer. And so there are some people who are now thinking way downstream about the kind of rights a, a beings like that or consciousnesses like that are going to want to have because there's a way to make them suffer if they actually gain some level of, of, of consciousness. But anyway, on to the happier stuff. <laughs> on to the happier stuff. <laughs> Look, it, it, you know, a lot of the predictions, including Ray's, we talked about some of the amazing uh, health and well-being breakthroughs that are going to come out of these systems, that they're, they're, they're protein folding, uh, vaccines, fitness and well-being regimes, personalized medicine, um, changes that are beneficial in, in energy consumption, transportation, and, and things like that. So when you bring smartness to all manner of objects of, of things and organizations, you're just going to get a lot of benefits to society. And of course, on the human rights side, even as they're worried about surveillance and other kinds of technologies, um, there are easy ways to describe how these technologies give people more power. They give people more power to, to, to access information. They give more power to learn things. I love the idea of, of learning in the future. That our, the next guest is going to be talking about. There are whole lots of ways that we can entertain ourselves and, and, and find meaning in life uh, through applications of these technologies. And then there are ways in which you know we're an inventive species, and we're gonna we are gonna create norms and institutions and other coping mechanisms. It, it takes a while. There are just periods of disruption, but a lot of these experts are hopeful that the that the course of human history shows enough times that we've managed change in a way that the that the species comes out better in the long run. Lee, uh, you know uh, the Accenture report that we referenced with. Yusuf, uh, in the report, they had said 40% of all working hours can be impacted by uh, LLMs uh, and generative AI. Lots of research from lots of institutions. McKinsey talked about, you know, 40% of all work. Um, we've, we've done internal surveys at my company, and it seems like five hours a week savings in marketing alone, which, which translates to a one month of gain productivity a year using current state capabilities of generative AI. Uh, what are your thoughts and what are these futurists and experts uh, in terms of the level of productivity gains at, uh, in play when we're talking about cost of creating content converging to near zero in near term and the accuracy also improving really fast uh, because it's a combination of public and private foundational models that are being tweaked uh, to get to this new content. Any thoughts, any surprises, uh, yeah. any blind spots that you may have had before the research that really made you rethink or reevaluate the profound impact of what may be the next 10 years with, with AI? Not just LLMs, but natural language processing, smart robotics, computer visioning, just you know, all the categories that encompass this thing we call AI. Yeah, um, we had a, a wonderful moment between when we gathered the data here and when we released the report where uh, GPT-4 came out yeah. and all the improvements <laughs> over GPT-3 were, were well documented and things yeah. like that. Uh, one of the surprises we, we found at, at Pew Research, we have a wonderful brand that you were kind enough to reference in introducing me of accuracy and, and representativeness and we just obsess about the data quality of, of what we do. 
And one of the earliest things that happened to us after ChatGPT came out was we started getting queries from reporters because we have an incredibly um, well-respected um, brand with, with reporters. We started getting queries sort of saying, this ChatGPT answer to me said that there was a Pew report on this subject and I can't find it on your site. And the models, this was you know, hallucination number one, nightmare number one for Pew because there are ways in which the models were generating authoritative seeming stuff coming out of Pew. And if you're predicting the next word in a sequence, soon enough, when you're studying the social impact of the internet, you get to Pew. And when you get to Pew, you get to Pew internet. And when you get to Pew internet, you get to surveys and stuff. And so we've been fending off some of the most interesting um, wow. things that have been challenging our brand wow. and are now sort of we, uh, our vigilance. We used to be really vigilant about the news clips that we got. Now we're having to be vigilant and we're having sort of prompt query sessions on how can our stuff be, be misinterpreted on uh, this. And wow. um, God knows, you know, set off the matrix and, and uh, Skynet's <laughs> going to start because Pew said something was going on in society. Um, but the, the experts are really, you know, very um, uh, supportive and, and confident about the idea that productivity is going to grow. And they, just to chat, GP, the GPT three to four advances are, are soon enough. And there, there are tons of ways that even places like ours that are so old school and so hierarchical and so vigilant about the data, it's, you can just see lots of applications that are going to speed up the process of getting stuff to market. You know, we can turn around reports more quickly. We can uh, summarize some key points. Matter of fact, uh, when we put together this report, we fed in all the expert answers and asked ChatGPT, what are the big themes you see here? And it was amazingly uh, consonant with wow. the things that we were seeing just in our hand uh, coding, hand observation of the data. So, yep, it's on our, it's on our future. That's amazing. And you heard Yusuf say, I mean, even companies as large as Accenture, you would assume hierarchy, complexity, organizational structures that yeah. are tall and deep, eight to ten percent automated processes every year. Yeah. So you know, it's 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 amazing how much hyper automation is on top of mind for. And that's you know one of the meta themes of all of these uh, expert reports that we're putting out. It, you know, we're in a period of transition where essentially we're going to sort out the biggest question humans have ever faced: What are we good for? And what, are, what can machines do better than us? And what can machines help us do? Sort of a really big sort. I am waiting for realize... Ray to replace me as a co-host of Disrupt. <laughs> I think or do we realize... Ray Wong and, and Disrupt GPT and I'm out. <laughs> no, 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 no. Or will yeah. we discover that the machines are the ones that really made us? Ask <laughs> uh, will be, the, yeah. be a different one. But hey, there is something that is shifting, right? I mean, you guys have noticed this, that Maybe the respondents have been watching too many dystopian sci-fi movies or people are feeling less optimistic about the world or maybe other factors. But but something's happening, right? I mean, you're watching these reports and answers are more pessimistic. Is that is that your sentiment as well? Are respondents yeah. feeling worse about the future or have we just lost inherent optimism or is humanity just going down that rat hole? Ray, that's really discerning. I mean, you're a careful reader, so thank you for that. Um, but it is it has picked up. And I, I would say there are a couple of benchmarks along the way that that saw these changes. The first, when some of the darker stuff out of social media started coming out, 2012, yeah. 2013, and just sort of the way the way that people were obviously gaming the system and abusing the system, which wasn't you know part of the original um, pitch that, that that social media firms were giving to us. 
Snowden revelations were a huge turning point where, you know, it's one of the arguments pre-Snowden in 2014, I think it was, or 2013, was that all this little stuff that I do in social media, just liking something or signaling where I am or making you making adding people to my friendship networks. Those are such inconsequential small scale things that, you know, they have no meaning. And all of a sudden, when you can amass that in profiles and, and social structures and networks and things like that, even the least consequential stuff can then turn around and affect the 2016 uh, presidential election. So there, that was a big uh, breakout. And all the stuff since then, I think, Ray's fit into this pattern where um, even the same experts who are pretty darn optimistic in the, in the mm -hmm. earliest stuff that we were fielding in the aughts are now, their basic presumption now as they think about AI is it's a, it's a balanced picture. Lots of people were saying it's um, equally excited and concerned about this, but concern is very much on their minds. And it's interesting to watch how the arguments about discrimination and um, and bias built into the models. It, it, those arguments weren't going on in the early days of the internet. It took a while for them to become part of the conversation. Now they're right in the thick of things at the moment that things are happening. My final question to you, because you did have breaking news at the beginning of our interview. We don't know anyone that has a more unquenchable thirst than you do in terms of understanding the impact of technology on society, present day and future. What are you going to be doing, Lee? What? But tell us what you're going to do for the next twelve. I'm going months. to do more. Of the, I'm going to do more of this future of the internet of work. I just, I just okay. can't quit it. It's too fun. It, it's, it's, it's so awesome. wonderful to be in contact with people like you. And it just, it gives me way too many warm fuzzies to back out of this. One of the things that maybe you guys can advise me on uh, down the line, I want to anchor this work in some big thing like, like trust or like human agency and autonomy. You know, there are little smaller scale things that are important to humanity and stuff like that. But I want this body of work to talk about this gigantic trans transition that's occurring in society and what it meant for the for the for our civilization, really. That's great. You know, Lee, I will give you a call in a few weeks, uh, let you get, retire a little bit with chat and uh, maybe we'll come up with something fun. Thanks, Bala. Really so, appreciate yeah, it. this is amazing. We're with Lee Rainey, director, former director of internet research at Pew Research Center. And of course, he's going to be doing something else. We'll find out what's next. Who do we have next? Okay, we can talk about all this amazing technology, but at the end of the day, if you don't have well-trained employees and customers, you're not going to achieve your full potential. We have Damon Lemby, CEO of LearnIt a global leader in corporate training solutions that have upscaled nearly 2 million professionals in the past 27 years. After dedicating the initial 22 years of his life to pursuing becoming a major league baseball player, Damon pivoted in 1995 to help his father, Walt Lemby, founder of LearnIt, by investing his heart and soul in LearnIt to help individuals gain the knowledge and confidence they needed in attaining their professional goals through the value of education. Damon is the author of a new book titled the learn it all leader, mindset, traits, and tools. Now in his book, Damon reminds us that great leaders aren't born, they're not made, they're in the making. Great leaders are constantly creating and recreating themselves, their companies, and their leadership. Damon attributes the learning longevity and success and the ability to surround himself with A players that take advantage of learning and evolve through past mistakes. Your best teacher is your last mistake. Please follow Damon on Twitter he must have been an early adopter of Twitter as well because he's got his first and last name, Damon Lemby, D-A-M-O-N-L-E-M-B-I. Welcome, Damon, to Disrupt TV. Hello, gentlemen. Thanks for having me. It's been great 
sitting here listening to Yusuf. And well, what about that? Talk about training a billion dollars a year. Billion training. Dollars. I, I should probably I should go into Salesforce and look at my rep and see why aren't we doing anything with those? <laughs> yeah. I mean, what, what an amazing amazing story and it was uh well that was i mean amazing thing for them to do with their employees and it was great listening to lee is very fascinating about the positives and you know the, and the negative perceptions and and how that kind of ties into uh what's well, going out in the world well, hey you come with great recommendations a former president of nestle you know someone who managed aerosmith right uh, the yeah. baseball hall of fame inductee you know tech companies like autodesk you know People that teach like at Pepperdine. I mean, this is pretty crazy, right? I mean, people are all trying to figure out, uh, you know, how to be set up for success. And I don't know if it's about but getting invited to more happy hours, but it's, it's something happening here. Um, talk about your three-step approach to overcoming imposter syndrome. Oh, I hear wow. this all the time on the show, and I I don't know what people are talking about. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm president of that club. I'm president of that club. Yeah. No, I, I, absolutely. And um, it was funny. I was speaking to a group of uh, college students yesterday about it, and. You know, all of us at some point in our lives go through imposter syndrome. It doesn't matter. You know, it, it doesn't matter who you are. We, we all experience it. And I, it started for me really back when I left. Um, and I talk a little bit about my book. When I left high school, I was a high school American. But by the time I got to Pepperdine, everybody was as good as I was. Right. And mm -hmm. so I, I first was like, I don't know if I belong here or not. Am, am I good enough to be here? I struggled and I ended up moving to Arizona State. And really, this is where I learned how to get over imposter syndrome, because a lot of people are like, Arizona State's the best baseball team in the country. How do you know if you're even going to you know, get a chance to play? But I said, I'm going to give it 100%. And really what I did, and this is really the model I've followed ever since, was I look at imposter syndrome. And first, you need to like identify what you're afraid of. You know, what, what is it that you're worried about? Is it uh, coming on a show like this and, you know, screwing up? Is it... Um, you know, a, a failing in a presentation or striking out in a baseball game. So for me, it's like identifying what's, what the, what the challenge is. And then number one, step number one, work hard. You know, there's, and I'm not talking about 14 hours a day, but you need to put in the reps and you need to work hard. Number okay. two is really focus in, focus in on what it is that, that you're, you're trying to accomplish. Yep. It's really, yep. I mean, you, you guys know, it's really easy to get, um, you know, distracted because it's, it's tough. So it's really easy to get distracted. So you really focus in and that's number step number two. And number three is really learn, you know, you're going to make mistakes while you're doing it, learn, but also kind of, you know, you need to let go a little bit too. Uh, and, and just don't take yourself too seriously. Things may not go the way you want them to go. And, Always. but at the end of the day, what I've also learned too is, you know, if you mess up, people might laugh at you or whatever, but people don't really care. They care about themselves is, is what their what their focus is. So really work hard, focus in on what you're doing. And then as far as uh, uh, learn from what you're doing and also let go, just give it your best shot. And if you've given it your best shot, what else can you do? That's it. I and, that. and so I, I started there and then whenever through my business career and everybody else, I've, I've tried to help with that because imposter syndrome is we all we all go through it. I love that. Well, uh, like the poster behind you reminds us, Rocky uh, dealt with yeah, imposter like syndrome. Like, you know, yeah, 1979 movie, best film. Yeah. yeah but getting slide. in the ring with Apollo, you know, he, he definitely didn't think he belonged there.
but again, like the posters you have through grit and, and discipline and execution and a great trainer, he mustered enough courage to get in the ring and we know what happened. Well, not in Rocky 1, it would be lost, but Rocky 2. Rocky 2. Rocky I, don't, I don't want to spoil the <laughs> ending for folks who haven't seen Rocky. Boy, I mean, there's but, more Rockies. There's more Rockies. Yeah. But in Rocky 2, is there ever is there even a better scene than when, when Rocky wakes up from laying in, you know, with, uh, not, not, excuse me, not Rocky, but uh, his wife uh, is coming out of her coma and, he, and Rocky's like, Hey, you know, uh, I don't have to fight anymore. I can, I can give it up. And and she leans into him and says, "Just win, win." That gets me every time. I got goosebumps. I got goosebumps. I was going to say, I get goosebumps. It gets me every time. She's just like, "Just win." <laughs> but in your book, you talk about potential, potential over experience <laughs> in the hiring process. Yeah. Certainly, with Rocky, you saw that someone who didn't have a winning experience, a lot of experience fighting championship caliber boxers but he had potential and and the trainer saw that in him uh can you talk about as as a ceo of a company why you speak to hiring based on potential not just experience and and, and this may not work in every position but uh you know I, I i would like to take somebody who has the aptitude and the potential and and the ability and wants to work hard and and isn't afraid to take chances than somebody who's got a ton of experience, but maybe they, they kind of feel like they've already been there, done that. And uh, I've had tremendous success. And I'm really proud of the individuals, some of the what you mentioned through Autodesk and, and CEOs of companies who started off at Learn It with really no, no experience, but they came in, they, they, were list, they listened, they were curious, and they were, they were open, open-minded and, and, and would try things. And they would try it and they'd do it. They'd make mistakes and they'd learn and they'd move forward. You know, there's a great story. I talk about it in my book a little bit. You've probably heard about it. Is uh, uh, Herb Keller, I think that's a lot, yeah. uh, from Southwest. Southwest, yeah. Yeah, and remember, and, and you know, the story is about how when, when they, in order for them to keep their prices down, they'd have to do quick turnarounds. <laughs> and so the board was like, Hey, well, we need to hire people from Continental, all these, all these airlines, because they need we need the people with the experience who could do that. And Herb's like, no, we're gonna do the exact opposite. We're gonna hire sharp individuals who are willing to get it done and who, who and sometimes don't even know any different. <laughs> and that's what they did. And and they said we have to get the turnaround time in 14 minutes. And you know what they did? They got it down to 12. And if you would have hired the, the people from Delta or whatever, they would have said, that's impossible, can't be done. Yeah. 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 And getting pit crews would probably been better. Yeah. <laughs> like, you yeah, know, yeah. Indy 5 pictures, you probably oh have my God. Really cool Five models, seconds so. that car is up. This is where the equation I can greater than IQ. You know, you want people that have a mindset, beginner's mindset, who are Absolutely. willing to tackle the impossible. I love Hey, this story. thing I really liked in the book was really the trust tax. Mm -hmm. and, and it is actually a real thing. And I personally went through that myself. Um, what is that trust tax? And why is it worth paying for that trust tax? Well, can I ask you, can you give us a quick, what happened with, with, with was it somebody that you were employed and, and they let you down or something like that? Um, I think it was a series of individuals um, that basically I thought should have performed at a certain period of time, but didn't. But um, I needed to give them more rope. How's that? Okay. Yeah, I, I'd say for me, the trust tax is something that I thought about and came up with. 
I inherently believe it's best to start off by trusting individuals, trusting them and thinking that people have the right intentions and, and going in at that from with that mindset. Mm, And you know what? And, and if if you do, you're going to get burned sometimes and, and and it's, and it's not going to work out every time. And, uh, and that's why I call it, that's a tax you pay on it. But I prefer to take that approach than to come in and be suspicious or, you know, from the other direction, always being thinking you're going to be taken advantage of. I've, you know, my, my, my father ran uh, a, a huge real estate, one of the largest real estate businesses in San Francisco. And he gave everybody a chance and he had a, a um, and, and I, there's so many times he got taken advantage of by people, but he just kind of played it off and, and, he, and he learned. So you wouldn't make the same mistake, but he always gave people opportunity. And I think that that is something that carried over from my approach. I've been burned several times. We all have, um, but you learn from it and you move forward, but that's the tax you pay. And I, that's why I think it's worth paying that tax um, because in the long run, you'll meet more good people who do the right thing. Damien, is, 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 that, is, is that an important um, philosophy in order to stay teachable? Don't you need to be comfortable showing vulnerability, like, like saying, I don't know, when you don't know something versus trying to pretend or guess or you know, try to mimic someone you admire versus just simply saying, I don't know, which shows vulnerability, even if you're a CEO or a leader like yourself, and then trusting your team that they will appreciate the fact that the best way to earn trust is to give it. So that tax you speak to is, is a methodology that allows you to maintain that open mindset and continue to learn versus pretending you know something and then maybe making a mistake along the way because you truly don't have the deep domain expertise you need to make a more informed decision. Yes. I look at, you know, and I call it, you know, learn it all. The, uh, I think there's four key traits to being a learn it all. Number one to me is humility, being humble. Humility. humility. And, yeah. and I think as a great leader, and I've seen this not just learn it, but through our customers we work with or the people I mentor or coach, is you don't need to be the smartest person in the room. You know, you don't need to be the smartest person in the room. You need to surround yourself with great talent. You need to not be afraid to. I mean, it, it, doesn't mean I mean, be confident, but be open to asking questions and saying, I don't know. And I really think um, there's a lot of talk these days about vulnerability and leadership. And I think it's super important. I also think it's a fine line. You don't want to be overboard and, 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 and apologize that you're making mistake after mistake. I mean, own, own your, own your mistakes and, and ask for help and come up with a path to make things better. But there's, you know, there's the old, sentiment of what you should never, you know, leaders think that, you know, I I can't admit weakness in any sense. And I think a lot of people see right through that, that it's not authentic. And uh, I don't know, I I just think it's, uh, I think great leaders understand that it's okay to be vulnerable and, and share the mistakes that, that, that they make and, and the help that they need. You know, that, that personal model of integrity is important, right? It's, it's part of the trust. Um, as, as someone once described, I believe your father, big guy with a big heart, Yeah, uh, you know, that's, mm-hmm. that's kind of the model, right? Yeah. I mean, if you have that, you, you earn people's trust and, and, you, and you take it to the next level. So, um, how, how much is integrity required 
right? I mean, what level of integrity, uh, you know, are, are people expecting for that in, in that workplace? Or that's just assumed. Well, I don't think it's assumed. But um, and that's also that's another one of the key traits yeah. is integrity. And when I played, uh, I was really fortunate. I got to play for three Hall of Fame baseball coaches, um, wow. which helped really um, mold some of my leadership skills. And the first one who I reconnected with after 30 years was Andy Lopez. And Andy Lopez, he went from Pepperdine, <coughs> excuse me, and then he coached at University of Arizona. He had two rules. Show up on time and do the right thing. Mm -hmm. And sometimes people would say, well, what does do the right thing mean? You know, I mean, he said, it's very simple. Do the right thing. Have integrity. You know the difference between right and wrong. Don't cut corners. Don't do anything that will get your teammates or your your coworkers in trouble. And um, I think, you know, Ray, I think integrity is is crucial for uh, for anybody, but especially the leaders, because if you're a leader and your team or your employees don't think you have integrity, they're not going to trust you and they're really not going to buy into what you're doing. And also, if you don't have integrity, I mean, there's a lot of, you know, a lot of backtracking you're going to have to keep track of to uh, keep your lies going. So why not just do the right thing and, and be authentic? Sounds painful. It's a lot of yeah. When, you're, when your thoughts, your words, and your actions are aligned and you're authentic, it's just easier. You don't have to rely on memory to, uh, to, 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 to address your mulligans. Okay, my final question, Damon. Where does the natural rank in terms of your baseball movies? Is it near the top? Is it one? <laughs> you know, there's a number of baseball movies. I natural versus Field of Dreams. Let's oh, go. Field, no. cage match. field of Dreams. Ray. Yes, yes. Or I, the, I, the rookie, the new one uh, that speaks to a high school teacher who ends up playing pro baseball as a promise to his team. Was that uh, was that was that Kevin Costner? That uh, one? No, no, it was uh, not Kevin Costner. His name escapes me, but he's teaching. He's a baseball coach in high school. True story. Oh yeah, He ends yeah, up yeah. playing for the Devil Rays for two two two, <laughs> two years. And that's a great. That's, that's a, a great, great movie. <laughs> The Natural, I would say, I, for some reason, I didn't love The Natural. I was more of a, a Field of Dreams fan. Yeah. yeah. Um, no, so, what about Bull Durham? Where does Bull Durham fit on that? That's number one. I love, I love Bull Durham. <laughs> there you go. Okay. I mean, I'm a big movie guy. I'm a Kevin Costner fan in general. But yeah. um, out of all the ones, I mean, that we've talked about, I would say, I would say Bull Durham is, was my favorite. Bull Durham is a classic. Yeah. And, Field and of Major Dreams. League. I've and seen Major 20 League. times. Major League. Major League. Major League is good too. David, Major we need League. on Twitter. We need you to rank the top 10 baseball movies. <laughs> maybe, maybe I'll do that. Okay. <laughs> As someone who hit a home run in a college world series, you have a lot of street cred in terms of ranking baseball movies. So. <laughs> Thank you. It's Thank amazing. You. Hey, get the book, Learn It All, Leader, Mindset, Traits, and Tools. It's available on Amazon and wherever books are sold. This book came out in April, one of the top books to look at, um, and really, really appreciate you for being on the show today. So Thank Happy you Friday. Thanks Thank for giving a grand slam. Thank you. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, we'll be uh, in the green room if he's still there, and we'll catch up with him there. But yeah. Okay, but so... <laughs> My brain is spinning. Uh, okay. Stump the chump time, right? <laughs> yeah, well, I want you to recap uh, what you learned from Yosef, who's leading $215,000, $10 billion business, uh, to 
to Lee, who is, uh, you know, collaborating with the 305 biggest minds in terms of understanding the impact of technology on our future and society. And of course, Damon, who's reminding us all the skills and attributes we need in terms of trust, integrity, fighting imposter syndrome to, to stay teachable. Your thoughts, Ray? <laughs> Actually, I think this episode really talked about technology and humanity and, and really the struggles and conflicts that we're going to face over the next 10 years. Uh, USOS operations are huge, right? They're people intensive. And over time, they're going to be very machine and automated intensive. And he's got to figure out where you actually insert humanity into the process and what will people pay for humanity? Uh, and, and I think that's going to be a very, very big piece. And I think what we've learned is, right, there's a lot happening in this space and a lot of innovation. I think what we learned from Lee is really the fact that you know, futurists like myself are a little bit more dystopian than ever. And these trends that are popping up, society has not really caught up, like policy has not caught up with the technology limitations. And once again, this is a human uh, technology or human machine conflict that's happening. And I, and I really think that that requires us to really rethink policies. Um, uh, a few months back, and this sounds really silly, but uh, I was really bored on the plane and I started reading the Federalist Papers and the Anti-Federalist Papers again. And in it, I was like, holy crap, if we were to redesign a country from scratch and we haven't looked at this for 250 years, like what rights would we have? What digital rights would we have? What would we do to create equal playing fields for humanity versus machines? And that's kind of the context and frame I was looking at. Uh, but then, you know, talking to Damon, I think I realized that, hey, look, uh, humans are uh, going to still have an advantage because we will learn things and we will grow and we'll continue to change over time. And with the right models and the right approach, there are things that machines can't do that humans will be able to do. And as we said earlier with Lee Rainey, right, those are the things we're going to figure out. What will humans be able to do that machines won't be able to do? And why will humans still have an existence? So there you go with the meta-analysis. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, no wonder Lee Rainey called you out as one of the more accurate futurist and he's the definitive uh he's the arbiter he's the arbiter so that was a pretty awesome proud moment as a co-host knowing that i am with one of the most accurate futurists in the world okay uh episode uh 332 next week next friday we have 331 March. oh okay, okay uh 331 sorry 331 see i'm trying to get to the future by one week <laughs> episode 331 <laughs> mike Yamamoto, Executive Vice President, Chief Customer Engagement and Marketing Officer at F5. And Mike is going to be uh, Mika, yes. by his colleague, Kara Sprague, Executive Vice President, Chief Product Officer at F5. So we've got two incredible leaders shaping F5. We have Mike Fitzsimmons, Co-Founder and CEO of CrossHQ. And we have David Dotson, author of The Manager's Handbook. I like that. Manager's Handbook. Okay. If it's Friday, it's Disrupt TV. Thank you for watching episode 330. And we'll see you next Friday for episode 331. Thanks, everyone. Bye. And we'll catch Damon in the